It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, when uh, people who don't know you first meet you and ask the inevitable question, what do you do? I, I always say I'm a physician. Which is true. Fatty Judah is a doctor. But uh, he is neglecting there to mention that he is also a serious, accomplished, and award-winning poet. And some pretty big awards at that. But uh, that's just kind of a pain to talk about in casual conversation. You know, they'll ask you, well, what do you write? And then it's even another level of mystery when you say a poet or a translator of poetry. So easier to stick to the day job. You know, with the doctor thing, it's like somebody saying they're a lawyer or a school teacher. We still don't know much about the other profession, really. But, you know, we have these sort of generalized societal conceptions and we move on. <laughs> do your colleagues know that you write poetry? Uh, not many. Again... Talking about poetry would just mean dealing with all sorts of questions and preconceptions. And who has time for that? There's also maybe a, a sense of uh, shyness about it, I think, also. Well, you're not going to get off the hook so easily in this conversation. Sure, I accepted <laughs> to, to be on the radio. Indeed he did. And so I proceeded to ask Fadi about all of it. The poetry, the doctoring, and his, shall we say, complicated relationship with both vocations... See, Fatty is uh, skeptical of all sorts of institutions and conventions, be they literary, medical, political, national, economic, you name it. And once you hear about his background, as you will, if you stay tuned, I think you'll understand why. But enough out of me. Let's let him and his poems do most of the talking. Here's my interview with Fatty Judah. You work in a Veterans Administration Hospital in Houston. I did. Oh, you did? Yes. Not I any did longer? For, for eight years, right. I did. And about five, six years ago, I moved to clinic work, and now I'm back in, in a hospital setting. But not the VA hospital? Not anymore. Oh, okay. Um, you know, when reading some of your poems, I at least imagined that they were influenced by a case, a medical case. Right. You know, that this was a person who you were treating. Uh, an example being uh, from your book, A Light, the poem also... Correct. Do you want to read that one? Sure. Also, those who would later be scraped off their seats or, if scorched in retreat, scooped up by bulldozers, then buried in the desert, can be seen in carefully orchestrated pocket-knife slashes over his distal left forearm, on which his right hand learned the exact press, so that no tendon, artery, or sheath is sliced but enough for conversation and suture of two. And his boys, ten and fifteen, they want to be closer to him more than he can let them. This was a man who was veteran. Yes. Iraq? Yes. So tell me about taking what had happened to him that you must have learned from talking to him. He was cutting himself, is that right? Correct, yeah. After having been through that experience. What was it like to make that into a poem? It's a complicated impulse for me in this case. Um, prior to that encounter, I was in Darfur with Doctors Without Borders. And I saw a lot of children there, obviously, who, you know, children uh, suffer wars in greater numbers and uh, depth uh, than, than adults, in a, in, a, in a way, you can say. And I saw a lot of children, took care of a lot of children, um, and, and also saw the difference between our cutoff for manhood and childhood versus maybe another culture or another setting's cutoff for childhood and, and manhood. Um, and that's always been on my mind, even as a Palestinian as well, as a Palestinian-American and, and a son of Palestinians. Um, but having said that, let's leave that for a while and just say that as a physician and having come back from that experience, I worked uh, after that in the VA and, and I saw that a lot of our veterans, of our soldiers, are children so I encountered, I think there's another poem in the book called Listening. Mm. And I encountered these kids who are just kids and uh, completely uh, traumatized. What was interesting for me is that um, 
hearing stories about people who were involved in the first Iraq war, the Kuwait war, and to see them back. So they're, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later, and their childhood, you know, never left them because it was taken away from them. So you hear these stories, and it's hard to walk away from them without feeling an impulse toward testimony or or honoring this tragedy. I understand very well that the poem on the page and the and and when it's heard and the way I read it might for many people only echo a pre-existing national narrative that goes along with, you know, uh, uh, support our troops but against the war and all this kind of, you know, lingo that goes back and forth. But for me the poem for those of us who may want to take the conversation within themselves a little further is about much more than that. Well, you mentioned another one, listening. Seems like a good time to hear that one. It has a, a foul word in it. Is that okay? That's quite all right. <laughs> okay. Listening. His rage is from not killing anyone at close range, not seeing the brain splatter. He says he was trained to murder, but all he did was ride the Humvee probability. And off the record, he flipped grenades at villages by the side of the road and laughed. Bullet littered the land and the vehicles passing by when his was passing by. Sometimes he dragged passengers out and mashed them without touching the face. Sometimes when he walks into a gas station, now that he's back, they greet him. How are you, brother? And he replies under his breath, I am not your fucking brother, you gas station people are only targets to me. His is a professional failure. I empathize. He works out, but it's in math class that his thoughts wander. He imagines a trespasser, how he'd mutilate him and hide the microscopic blood. He's tearful, hyperventilates, his mother's shoulder is Siamese with his. Think of life, I say. He says, life is short. I say, short or long, think of life. Then I go back to my desk, where there's a message for me to call my father. I call and he says, your sister had penciled something down in Arabic a while back, splotched now. I say, I don't want to return to anyone. I don't want to return to any country after this long absence. I want only to return to my language in the distances of cooing. Right after it in the book, I follow this poem with a different poem that also honors children in a different way. And I'm, you know, without you prompting me, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read <laughs> it. And uh, it's called Mimesis. My daughter wouldn't hurt a spider that had nested between her bicycle handles. For two weeks, she waited until it left of its own accord. If you tear down the web, I said, it will simply know this isn't a place to call home and you'd get to go biking. She said, that's how others become refugees, isn't it? Is that your daughter Mona? Yes, she's my stepdaughter. Uh, I think you mentioned in an interview that I read that Mona was, for a time, maybe at this time that you're writing about, obsessed with Gaza? She was, yes. Uh, this was during the... Uh, particular carnage in Gaza, I think it was in 2008, uh, December 2008, or if I recall correctly. And um, you, you have relatives there? Yeah, many. Many. Your parents were both Palestinian refugees? Yes, were, yes. Did they come from the Gaza area? Uh, yes, they, uh, you know, so where we come from as Palestinians, uh, which is confusing for many people to hear, the we switch back and forth, uh, <laughs> is from a town called uh, Ashdod, uh, Esdud, and, um, and it is now inside Israel, So, but mm. it is not in the Gaza Strip. Mm. There's also a misconception as if Palestinians only come from what is now <laughs> the Gaza Strip or the, the West, West Bank, Bank yes. you know, and... Um, and uh, no, I was curious to know whether your parents grew up in what 
is now considered occupied territory or the Palestinian territories or inside the pre-1967 borders of Israel? My father grew up in what is now Israel, before it was Israel. And when it became Israel, he became a refugee that moved into the Gaza Strip as refugees. So he moved south. Was that in, did he flee in 47? 48. 48, 48 yeah. Also, your mother both fled their villages in 1948 when my, so many my Palestinians My mom was born did. in 49, so she was oh, okay. a, a refugee already. She was born a refugee. Oh. <laughs> but my father was 14. He's, he's a little older than my mom. So he, he was born in the 30s and grew up in the 30s and, and 40s in Sdud, in Ashdod. Uh, and so he remembers the British uh, presence, the uh, Zionist forces, the Egyptian presence, you know, and so forth. And your mom grew up, you say, as a refugee. She was born as a refugee where? In Rafah. Oh, in Rafah, uh, also which, in Gaza. Right, which okay. is south, uh, south uh, in Gaza and quite a uh, demolished <laughs> place mm. at this point. Mm. Mm. So your your daughter Mona, your stepdaughter Mona, was aware of this history at a pretty young age. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a very... Um, traumatic, uh, there were very traumatic days. Uh, you know, one of, one of the experiences, I think, that are very peculiar for Arab Americans and uh, Muslim Americans as well, one can say, is that uh, the frequency of the days that you wake up in America to hear uh, something derisive, at least, if not dehumanizing, said about your people uh, in one TV station or one newspaper headline is immense. I mean, it's it's nonstop. And it's not just uh, in the last few years, but it's been going on for decades. So it is hard for, it was hard for Mona not to notice everybody around her in, in the community in Houston um, and not be, uh, you know, distraught with what was happening in Gaza. Uh, mm. And sometimes you think you're really not communicating with your kids about this, but, you know, kids are incredibly astute and they pick things up. And and so she wanted to sort of bear the wound, you know, as a, as her own sense of testimony as well. And, you know, only then when you, when you see that, that you feel that you just can't protect your kids from such things that easily. And uh, so, yeah, the, the deep trauma is, is there, you know, and I think it's a human issue, obviously. I mean, it's not particular to any kind of people. That's a consolation, perhaps, for us as people to know that, you know, we all really share suffering equally. Sadly speaking, we all exist, and sometimes most of us uh, insist on hierarchy of suffering. You know, we all really want to wear uh, crowns and laurels of, of suffering, and, and it's a bizarre concept, but mm. nevertheless, unfortunately, mm. uh, human all too human. Mm. So your daughter Mona, again, uh, aware of your family history, aware of what was going on in Gaza in, in 2008, is concerned about you displacing a spider because that's how people become refugees, you know, by... Right. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, that's part of the reason why I titled the poem Mimesis, because, you know, we follow Aristotle with the notion that art is essentially a, a, an act of mimesis. And uh, when she said the word refugees, I mean, she was she was very young. She obviously got this from us somewhere, but the displacement of the concept onto the spider, uh, ironically speaking, was was quite a, a moment. Obviously, in, in The Earth in the Attic, my first book, I'd, I'd mentioned the concept of the spider. Yes. Uh, it is also in, in Arabic and Islamic folklore or literature or history, part of the immigration of the prophet of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. A spider saves him from some pursuers. Right. And that's uh, at your poem, Along Came a Spider. Right, yeah. right. So I, I've had this relationship with <laughs> with spiders. And I, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and maybe thinking a little bit of, of sort of the art of the poem, I, I've always, you know, people ask me about what, what have, you know, what have you learned the most from translation and stuff. And my answer is very simple. It, it's it's that you, you learn to develop your own lexicon. If you as an artist uh, and an author and a poet, you're not aware of the arc of the body of your language, you may just be um, not much more than a mime or a mimic of an artist. Can you remember the, the, the first poetry that you learned, that you heard? and? Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. It must have been when I was not even, you know, five years old. 
and it was in Arabic, and it was most likely the poetry of Mahmoud Darwish, um, and it was most likely a poem that uh, my uncle, my maternal uncle, had asked me to uh, memorize and gave me coins for reciting it back to him, or at least, you know, a part of it. And so all I can say is one is born with this uh, tendency to hear music and language. And, you know, as as recent neuroscientific research has shown that there's the parts of the brain that light up when poetry is composed or read or heard uh, are the areas of the brain that light up when music is mm. played and and listened to. Mm. Can you recite even a couple lines from that poetry by Darwish, who is a pal- famous Palestinian poet? That particular poem, if I remember those lines, is is a famous one. I mean, the beginning of it goes something like, هذا هو العرس الفلسطيني هذا هو العرس الذي لا ينتهي لا يعود الحبيب إلى الحبيب إلا شهيدا أو شريدا. I never really realized that was probably one of the earliest poems that I remembered and wow. like 20 years later or so. Because I, I remember opening a book of his poetry. I, I got his collected works in Arabic. Uh, I, uh, and then one Christmas I went to ba- back to the Middle East and returned back to the U.S. And I was just flipping through the book and I opened on that poem. I opened a page on that poem and I... And I realized, I was like, this is not a deja vu. It's not, I know this. I, you know, uh, I can't remember the rest of the poem, but I know this. And, and, and what, by the way, do those lines mean? It says, this is the Palestinian wedding. This is the endless Palestinian wedding. A lover does not return to his beloved except as martyr or fugitive. Wow. But that was in his seventies. He he, you know, he'd done that bit and moved on to different but development of. You were a little kid memorizing this very adult poetry. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, this I mean, is you not have nursery a, rhymes, <laughs> you, <laughs> indeed. Uh, yeah, and I don't think uh, you know this is something talked about fairly enough, uh, uh, especially concerning the Palestinian experience that you grow up in a in a large, intense uh, collective uh, identity with a multitude of uh, specificities and, you know, individual traits. But there is a large collective identity, especially at those times, uh, you know, uh, Mm. it was the height of the PLO revolution. Mm -hmm. It was the height of the sort of the decolonization moments and liberation movements and so forth. So it was a different moment of being in the world uh, as a child outside America, I imagine. By the way, where were you at that time? Because I know you were born... I was in Benghazi, Libya. Uh Aha. So you were born in Texas. Your family then went to Benghazi? Right. And then then to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, when my dad wisely felt that uh, this was about 77 or 78. The strange, grandiose promise that uh, Qaddafi came in with uh, was uh, leaning towards madness and he just left early mm-hmm. um, of course going to Saudi Arabia was uh, uh, you know there was no madness there in that in that sense uh, but uh, you know but it was it still it provided a stable setting for a while um, uh, what was good, your father doing though good what education took, what uh, took him from Texas to Libya he's a history to... professor ah. he's retired now but he's a history ah. professor ah. History professor, what's he specialize in? Contemporary uh, Middle East history. So you not only learned history as one might, you know, being a Palestinian kid from relatives and the news, but your father directly, a lot. Yeah. So you were probably about as savvy as a kid could be. I don't know, but, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, but definitely both my parents... um, uh, had their own way of uh, relating uh, stories and uh, narratives. Mm. And, uh, you know, my father was much more the academ- ac- academic in the house than my mother was a school teacher. And uh, there was always poetry around mm. the house. A moment ago, you recited from memory uh, a piece of that Mahmoud Darwish poem. Uh, and I was asking you at that time about the influences that have sort of crept into your musicality, your rhythm, your aesthetic in your current poetry. Now, I hesitate to say anything 
descriptive about your poetry because I wanted to let it speak for itself. But, you know, one of the obvious things I could say is it's extremely stripped down. It's extremely compressed, and it's got seems to have gotten more compressed as you've gone along. Sure. Um, and that its music doesn't quite sound like that Arabic poetry you recited. So tell me about what do you think is at work in shaping your lines and shaping your your feel, you know, that comes out in these poems. Um, you know, it's it's actually an uh, interesting uh, observation because to me, uh, always the line between where Arabic ends and English begins is a very thin line in my mind. Wow. So I feel like I've reached a point where I've constructed an, an illusion of, ah. of, of that music. Uh-huh. And I'm able to sort of move back and forth. I no longer know that I'm consciously doing it. But when someone tells me, well, it doesn't sound like it, and, you know, I, I don't, because I, I relate to both languages deeply and privately to where I, I don't necessarily feel any urge to sort of separate them and exist as someone who somehow makes the uh, possibility of their merging uh, to be something alien. Well, you know, I, I wish I hadn't said that because I'm not even sure I believe it. I just think I just threw it out there as a provocation. Because when you read your poems in English and when you recited the Darwish poem in Arabic, there was something, you know, of course Arabic has its own sounds, which... English doesn't have, but uh, there was something. And also, there's also the way, especially I think in your later poetry, you are enjamming and otherwise pushing lines together, you know, and not punctuating. So there's this really interesting challenge to the reader as to where, where to pause or where to interpret the syntax. Now, is that also part of what you would call the music? Right. Uh, and I think it's a way of uh, surrendering some of that back to the reader. Um, and, uh, as one finds out, uh, with delight, the readers often bring, uh, a new music to, to text that one hasn't thought of before. Yeah. And so yeah. that's great. It's yeah. sort of, I'm, uh, you know, hoping for a gift to be returned kind of thing, uh, by, by doing that, by the enjambments and the lack of punctuation. Mm-hmm. Um, it does maybe, um, uh, uh, make the poems sometimes seem less accessible, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where in fact they're you know often very simple. Um, <laughs> they make they make the reader work. They made this reader work. You know, I want to read them again and again and again. Let's talk about the other one you read, which we haven't talked about at all yet. Listening, uh, it begins with in a way you telling the story, and I assume you listening to a veteran. He's got some pretty horrible stories. And then you tell him, think of life. And he says, life is short. Life is short. But then it makes this seemingly abrupt turn towards something in your life, uh, a message from your father, a statement that you don't want to go back. Is that right? Right. And all you want is... My languages and the distances of cooing. That is a quote from a Mahmoud Darwish poem. Uh, so when you see the text, you'll mm, see some things in quotation mm-hmm, marks mm-hmm. that uh, you know, and uh, and also some of the awkward language where you know when when the soldier says or the veteran says, "Mash them without touching the faces, without touching the faces," in quotations because that's it. Also expresses that schism that happens, that rupture that happens, you know, or is happening or was happening to to that particular person. Uh, you could say that listening is a poem in real time. Mm-hmm. So to be in the presence of shifting from from that uh, rupture to another rupture, um, you're an American physician for an American veteran in an American hospital on an American soil, and then you get a, a phone call from a father who who is uh, a displaced, exiled, refugee, dispossessed, uh, uh, and there is a language and splotched and, you know, my sister's Arabic is, uh, you know, I, she didn't, she grew up here. Uh, I grew up in, in, uh, in Arabic speaking countries. And so it's a bizarre moment that sort of, uh, does capture the whole world in a, in, in a few minutes. Mm. Um, mm. 
and then the stripping down, uh, as we uh, talked before the interview, uh, has sort of reached its new uh, manifestation through this concept of the textu poem, the poem based on character count. So this is one of your more recent projects, right? A, right. An ebook consisting of very short poems, limited to how many characters? 160, 160 characters, which is a little the, longer than Twitter, but uh, right. Well, Twitter is a, a mind on amphetamines or something. I mean, it, <laughs> it it just disappears. There's nothing there except if you capture something and retweet it, and even then, who knows? So you think twenty more characters makes a difference? No, uh, it, it's not that actually. Uh, it's that the, the one hundred and sixty characters is the actual limit of text message size. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for those of us who are not mad enough to pay for the <laughs> phone bill for unlimited texting, you actually get counted uh, uh, you know, by those 160 characters. And otherwise, and after that, you start paying. Right, right. And, <laughs> uh, and, in, and it depends on certain phones, but especially um, Androids, I think, more. Uh, but they probably change uh, by the month now. You know, the, the the message that you receive gets cut off at 160, and so it becomes two messages. So I thought that was, um, uh, you know, we communicate mostly through text, and it's usually um, very efficient. I mean, efficiency as a, as a disease almost. And it really uh, demeans language, and it becomes also a hiding place, the text... We all now prefer not to hear a voice, but just send a text. And the language of texting is um, both innovative and uh, disintegrating. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, you know, I don't have the time between patients or, you know, with the energy that met medical care requires and, you know, being a husband and a father and so forth. I don't have the time always to have all this language in my mind that I want to put down. And what if I began to put it down in controlled form that honors the short poem. But it was also interesting because composing the, the poems uh, was, was really a different kind of energy than counting syllables and stresses uh, to count characters and to know when to use contractions and when to not use them <laughs> and to make decisions about using numbers for, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, spelling, spelling out numbers or just using the numbers or... or and whatever, I realize that this is a, you know, sooner or later, you know, as much as we resist it, um, some of the electronic media language will filter oh, yes. into the dictionary. Oh, it um, already has. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the ampersand, historically, sure. this is nothing new. So again, oh, this yeah. is a, there's a resistance about things that actually we have historical precedence for. Oh, we have many of them. The language itself is constantly incorporating whatever's new. And people no, inevitably I mean, historically, resist. it's deep. You know, the, the changes yeah. are there. You know, they're deep. Yeah. Again, just the ampersand, just oh, yeah. the and, you know. Yeah. And and, uh, and so I thought, well, I'm not trying, I'm not being witty, whimsical, uh, too radical, uh, nor gimmicky. Uh, and in the end, you write a poem, you have to honor the art of the poem. In the end, it has to be a good poem. Do you want to read a couple of those? Uh, sure, yeah. These are on your cell phone, so you're going to have to... Wake up your cell phone and <laughs> read me some text poems. <laughs> I'll read one called Textu. The title poem. Uh, yeah. Your spine a river into the forest. Can't tell the neurons for the trees. I light and light you up with sound profile, threading the image habit of pleasure. Conscience. When we learn how an infant in the womb sleeps precisely in a parent's pose, say with fist closed, pillowing the temple, what will become of the poem? Dancing. Frisked breath. The dovetailed glass unravels in the heart. Laughter falls on our bodies. We kiss the way desert refuses rain from the sky or into earth. In love, patience is in need of patience, a stroke of the imagination unspeakable, a vanishing joy, banished to joy, not insomnia, not sleep, and knowing when you die. 
and it has allowed me to, you know, access all my language. So there are patient narratives here and conversations about medicine. Um, you know, maybe I've just come into myself a little bit, come into a, you know, uh, coming to age a little bit uh, with more confidence to speak about these things. Hmm. And this one is uh, called Immune. My heart isn't another's. Love is no transplant. It can be. Or when I'm dead, I will give you my eyes and also my liver. You must suppress their memory of me. These are not only, you know, adhering to the 160-character limit of a short text message, but they're composed on the phone, are they? Right, right. right. It was easier to uh, to keep count that way, you know. <laughs> and yet, when you read them, they sound classical to me. I, you know, they yeah, sound well, like... Well, I mean, that's what I said. I, I, one has to be <laughs> honest and, and, and say that this is not a major invention. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're still honoring the short the form of the short poem. Right. But but it is interesting to say that what's inventive about them is that you're using a medium, not the handwritten mm. you know mm. uh, format, and uh, and you're also you know depending on character count and also on a medium either that has a light and sound to it. Mm-hmm. So Fatty, we've we've talked a little bit about your past. I want to know about after growing up in um, Libya and Saudi Arabia, coming back to the U.S. where you had been born, but. You had left when you were how old? One. One. <laughs> I was an anchor baby. <laughs> a sleeper. Uh, so you came back to the U.S., though, to go to college and then to medical school. Right. What was that like, coming back? And I, and I say coming back, of course, you, were, you couldn't even remember when you'd been here, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, it's also a really interesting uh, construct of which I use the same thing, you know, coming back, because, you know, you, this, this whole obsession we all have right. about, you know, the ideas of places of origin. Right, and, right. So you just, you know, but, um, well, we, I never was really, I, I never was really cut off from the, the U.S. because, you know, my parents often, almost every other summer, would, we would come back to the States oh. and spend summers oh, uh, okay, here. Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, so I was never really that alienated from the culture, the, the smell in the air. I mean, there are still days when... the language, too. Uh, sure, the language, you know, the TV mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And, you know, let alone that the American sort of uh, culture doesn't uh, leave the world alone. So mm-hmm. no matter where you are, you'll mm-hmm. find it uh, and it'll find you. But it was different. In particular, um, it became very different because, you know, I, I left my high school friends. You know, they were really close buddies and, uh, you know, entire friends that I grew up with from middle school and high school. In Riyadh? In Riyadh, yeah. Mm. And uh, But what was really a turning point, I think, was the Kuwait War because my parents were persecuted for being Palestinian and were kicked out of Saudi Arabia for that purpose. And it wasn't, obviously, they weren't the only ones. There were hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Palestinians in Kuwait and the entire Gulf who were just, uh, you know, persecuted for the mere, you know, fact of being Palestinian and whatever positions that the PLO took at the time. And it was because of, it was because of that. I mean, obviously it was right. It was because Arafat, you know, supported, you know, Saddam. Mm -hmm. But your parents were expelled. Right. Wow. And ironically, uh, my older brother and I being American born, you know, they, we brought them over. Wow. So they began their third segment of their life and their second uh, exile uh, uh, here in the U.S. Wow. Your mom, who was born a refugee, your dad, who was a refugee at a young age, booted out of Saudi Arabia back to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's quite an interesting story. And, you know, you wonder when will these stories become part of the American fabric, that it's okay to have these narratives uh, on TV, there is an unspoken set of dues that have to be paid before one enters certain domains of the American or national fabric. Mm. Well, tell me about the, your decision then to come to the U.S. You know, I mean, you might have chosen some other country. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, again, I mean, my parents were here in the 60s, um, and I mean, there's just an association with the place. Um certainly is a place where, you know, for studying medicine, it's also stable and wonderful and, you know, sort of a state-of-the-art kind of. I mean, there's not much really to say. Mm. Um, What about the decision to become a doctor? Did you have poetic aspirations at the time also? 
Poetic inclinations, yes. Poetic <laughs> aspirations. I don't know if anyone has aspirations when they're poets. Uh, uh, you know, I, I tend... I mean, it's easy retrospectively to speak of medicine and say it's like anything serious in life, like having children, like getting married. So medicine, which is basically being in constant contact with the ailing and the dying, nobody's ever able to articulate that to you <laughs> and what that's like at a younger age. Nobody tells you what marriage is going to be like, stable or happy, you know, and having kids. And nobody can predict. Nobody wants to feel like they can pass that judgment. Um, but you had an image, clearly, of what you would be doing, why you wanted to be a doctor. Which, as with all the other examples, is, is always a, a uh, I think, uh, largely skewed, romantic, false image Um of what it's like. I sometimes think the practice of medicine is about the idea that, look, we know it's hell and it's very complicated, but someone's got to do it. And historically and anthropologically, we've anointed the concept of the physician a demigod status. So we're going to, we, somebody's <laughs> going to, so we're just going to keep hush hush and we're just whoever's going to do it, you know. But obviously the times have changed. So Physicians don't hold, and gladly so, the aura that they did, say, 100 or 200 years ago. Well, you're in a far better position to say than I am, uh, but I still think we have kept alive a certain mystical aura around doctors. First of all, it's one of the few um, professions where you get this title that people are supposed to use with you. I mean, ordinary people are supposed to call you Dr. Judah, Right. I hope uh, not. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does happen. You know, people who know you probably do call you that if they no, know you're a doctor. No, not at all. Well, the, I, 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 I but, you know. Yeah. But still, there is this tradition, I will call you doctor, okay? As, whereas almost everybody else in my life, I don't have a title that I have to add right, to the right. front of their name. And you have all the rituals in which you sit in the waiting room and someone comes out and says, the doctor will see you now. <laughs> you know, there is still a lot of old-fashioned pomp and circumstance around doctors. Right. Sure, there's also, uh, you know, uh, pomp and and what have you around <laughs> other things. But uh, the problem with the role of the physician now is that one is deeply tied to a web of various systems that, in a sense, the aura is false. Mm. I am not uh, grieving this. Don't misunderstand me. No, I don't get that impression, uh, no. I think that I am aware deeply that much of the practice of medicine is incredibly subservient to an idea of power that subjugates its own population that it serves. Subjugates how? I'll tell you in a minute. I am not also trying to dismiss the good that one can be part of for other people as a physician or a healthcare worker. I am not trying to also dismiss the moments where you really need a good clinician to just get that right diagnosis for you that, that you know, 20 others failed at, and it just makes a difference in your life. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that these kind of obsessive moments about the individual story are uh, also red herrings or lead us down the garden path, if you will. Which obsession with the individual story? You know, the, the great doctor who, you know, oh, I, oh. I know this doctor who, who <laughs> did this thing for me, and since then I could have died and so forth. Because, you know, it's not just about one person or one story. Um, but I do think that the medical establishment has to be asked, in what role does it participate in the um, turning of the patient uh, as a consumer? Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like when, when you come with a chronic illness... Maybe the physicians don't think that way, but the whole system acts that way. You're mine. Now you're mine. And the only way a physician has, you know, under the, you know, the, the cover of science and objectivity, most of what a physician has to say to you is take this pill and that pill because this study proved that this pill works and this study proved that that pill doesn't. There is no participation in deeper analysis of what causes societal ailments. Everything is so well-structured. Again, a Foucauldian nightmare, in a mm -hmm. sense. Uh, when I stepped outside and went to Doctors Without Borders, when I hear my parents' narratives as children, when you realize that the majority of the population in the world does not receive uh, medical care, let alone here, you know, uh, and you realize that th this, you know, 
the practice of medicine to a larger extent than it needs to be in the um, powerful world uh, is really subservient to power structure. How does that affect your practice of medicine, all these misgivings? Uh, it affects it on a personal level, sometimes in a very troubled manner, to be honest with you. Um, I think that uh, I think sometimes that it's a violent profession. Uh, violent in the, in the power relationship? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, uh, people I mean, become fairly passive and helpless uh, in the embrace of the medical system. And everybody, I mean, you know, there is a... It's, it's really, it seems like I'm just, you know, over the top when I say this, and I understand people who would That argue you've read too much Foucault. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's got his own problems too. Mm. Uh, but no, that, that there is also a banality of evil to it. Mm. You know, I'm just a doctor doing my job. I'm charting things correctly. I'm following the medical algorithm, whatever. It's not my problem what happens to you from, you know, the hospital system, the insurance system, other doctors screwing up. It's not my problem. Again, mm. the subcompartmentalization thing. Mm. Another wonderful example is, you know, to remember some of the things that my mentor used to say to us, a man who's now 85 years old, uh, Dr. Herbert Fred from Waco, Texas. And, you know, he, he'd, he, he's the first one when I was in training, you know, 17, 18 years ago, he'd say, uh, so now we don't speak of patients, we speak of organs. You come to me with a, with kidney failure, you know, I'm concerned with your kidney. I don't give. I don't really care that much about you. And a compassionate doctor uh, gets more credit than they deserve. When there's a compassionate doctor, we act now as if it's a bonus. You mean in addition to being a good technician? Right. Right. I mean, and and that's really what much of medicine is. What uh, attracted you then to volunteering for Doctors Without Borders and going to Darfur and Zambia mm -hmm. at various points? Mm. Uh. I, I wanted to make sure that I, um, uh, you know, immunized myself with something other than, you know, the, the sole reality of how to practice medicine, uh, capitalist medicine in the U.S., which is what the medicine that I trained to practice. Uh, and I wanted to sort of infuse myself with a different idea and a different perspective. Also, I, I wanted a sense of giving back. Because I know that my uh, parents and many of my relatives uh, have benefited from the care of other physicians who sort of stepped outside their own comfort zone mm. or, you know, their own European or American realms and uh, uh, or city realms or what have you or bourgeois realm, mm. realms and, and just, you know, and, and were there for them you went as to, refugees, you, you know, you, as, as displaced people. As, so you were treating refugees – Right. And you knew that you were going into a situation where you'd be exposed to awful things. Sure. Things that had been done to these people. Sure. Uh, what was it like for you to choose that? And were you afraid of what you'd confront? Or were you, with sure. all your medical uh, training, sort of, does that steal you for something? Uh, so here's my answer to that. My answer to that is, is what I have termed the Oliver Stone syndrome. <laughs> we don't talk about really the people we serve. We being okay. uh, physicians who mm. go on humanity, you know, in this mm. case, or we think we do, but we really don't because we never get the chance to know them. And barely any of them, whoever they may be in, in, in different parts of the world, get the chance, nor do we give them that chance or seek to give them that chance to actually come here and tell us exactly what it is that they experience. Mm. And when they do, it's a million-dollar bestseller, uh, you know, in, in some little memoir here or there. But it's always exoticized. It's always a, a, a fantasy thing. And the Oliver Stone thing comes uh, in about uh, the, the idea that in the end, it's all about us. So talking about Doctors Without Borders and interviewing a, a physician who had been with them is really about us. It is not about, you know, we are not going to have this conversation to tell you deeply and meaningfully what I saw in Zambia and what I saw in Darfur. And even then, it would still be the testimony of a single person, you know, a George Clooney moment. It's just about us. Well, I can imagine it being about, quote, them, the people you treated. But I bet you'd agree with me that uh, when we talk about them... We're fitting them into nice, neat categories of victims of... Absolutely. Yeah, of damaged objects. Absolutely. You know? That's exactly right. That's part of the reason why we, we don't know how to speak about other people except in the sense that 
uh, benefits our own sense of superiority? Well, that's why I want to ask you about your poems, the ones that were about experiences you had, let's say, in Darfur. You must have wrestled with this problem, and I'm really curious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how you engaged with it. Um, do you have a poem or two that you might want to... I Yeah, I'll... I'll uh... You want me to read them first and then maybe yeah, yeah. talk? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I have it in, in the first book, in The Earth in the Attic, and I also have some in, the, in A Light. And again, I'll pick maybe uh, another one from A Light. Um, a mother offers not necessarily sells her one-eyed son for an education if you'll bring him back and stone dust for one with congenital illness. And little boy with malaria, same old gas, money mixed with blood, transfusion, the doctor's perfect record broken, nobility of taking a life, you who must walk to and from your house, the jeep's upkeep, the donkey cart ambulance. The first time I saw you, It was hot, I was fed up. The second time, your wife gave birth to a macerated boy. I had nothing to tell you about letting go of the dying. In the morning, you were gone, had carried your father back to your house, his cracked skull. I didn't know that was your wife when I raised my voice to those who were praying from behind the wall to keep it down. I was trying to listen to your baby's heartbeat with a gadget a century old. And the titles? uh... This is a sequence poem uh, called After. After. And in a sense, it's a response or a continued conversation with another sequence poem in the first book called Pulse. So I think one can speak of other people as those who suffer and those who are victims. The question is in which manner and how does one bring it up? Right. And I think the least I can do is to say some of what I just said earlier and acknowledge the limitations and acknowledge the privilege I have and in a sense that in testimony and in such honoring, I'm still climbing on their suffering in a way. Um, and come to think about it, you know, these concepts of testimony and poetry of witness and da da da, da. I mean, do you think people in Palestine come up with this stuff? Or it, it, They're Western concepts. They're concepts of luxury. Mm. Anyway, you know, I struggled with it and I still do. There are some moments when I want to convince myself that my background and my active background as a Palestinian gives me some immunity, some sense of understanding that is deeper than just the objectification of someone else mm. uh, as miserable, because, you know, mm. half of my relatives are that miserable, you know, and in this dialectic of the victim and the victimizer. Uh, and also, you know, the same problem here with, you know, uh, at a much lesser scale, obviously. But but I do think that, you know, I tried to write poems uh, that somebody, and I wish they they might, uh, be able to take me to task on them truly and not whimsically. Well, you said you wish someone would take you to task. I mean, meaningfully, not, not the, you know, the, this cliche stuff that uh, people repeat, some people repeat. Well, what would, what would be a cliche about this? I don't know. Try. <laughs> okay, you've taken an experience of someone else, or many someones in Darfur, and you've turned them into these beautiful objects that are put in a really nice-looking book that's sitting in front of us that people will admire. And they will say, Fadi Judah is such a sensitive guy. Right. I know you've already done this to yourself. I don't know why I'm even bothering to say it aloud. You've already questioned yourself in exactly that way. So what's your answer? I don't know. Narcissism? Is that what you want to hear? It's, it's, it's simple. That's fair enough. Was that one of the cliches, by the way? No, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's there. But I don't, you know, I, I, this wasn't a, a field project for me. Right. This wasn't a research project for a book of poetry. I mean, right. I lived it. Right. And I have parents who lived it and right. relatives who still do it. So I, I feel a different association with it. But I'm also aware of the problems of naming, coloring, yeah. and... A part of my project is concerned with 
taking to task in poetry, through poetry, the problematic of the nation-state concept. And the other side of the coin to the nation-state is the stateless, Mm -hmm. is the displaced Mm -hmm. in particular, Mm -hmm. the refugee. You know, you have the internally displaced. And just let's say the displaced people, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, you can have you have enough refugees, about 40 million, the number keeps fluctuating across the world, you know, 30, 40 million. That's like a, a big country. And you have displaced people in, in the millions as well. And then you have other forms of displacement within states, severe displacements, you know, uh, immigrants and, and, and uh, homeless and, uh, and, and the poor. Mm-hmm. These become the face, uh, the faces of of the nation state idea or ideal that most of us wake up with every day, without with hardly any questioning of uh, of it and of the luxuries that most of us receive or many of us receive from it, and just you know think that it's a normal thing, it's a God given right, and so forth. And it's just for me a participation in this in the conversation at a small level to say that the world historical individual you know, maybe to echo a Hegelian concept or something, is the refugee in our age. And in fact, Vico um, uh, says that, in, in, you know, in his new science, he says that, you know, the, the, the one constant recurrence in human history has always been the displaced person, you know. The, and and you, you have to wonder, okay, you know, it's worth to bring that up in the conversation at a different level. You know, I was going to ask you where you get time to write poetry, being both a hardworking doctor and a father. Now I want to ask you where you got time to read Foucault, Jean-Baptiste Vico, all these other people you're citing. I actually read uh, Vico in Darfur. I took the book with me there. And wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How do you, what even puts you onto that kind of reading? You know, it's a, it's, it's a problem. I feel like I'm in a crisis, right, because the limitation... I have is is a conversation with um, power structures because power structures seem to define so much of us and the simple notion of saying but walk away and step away from it and this whole kind of empty echoes of Mandela and Gandhi and when we don't really know what it is you know or playing Buddha or whatever you know they they seem false to me it, it is really it's just a conversation it's it's trying to elevate the conversation with uh, you know with, with the dialectics of power mm-hmm. yeah and so you've read a lot of the critics of power power embedded in political systems but power embedded in knowledge as well and the way we structure knowledge which is you know uh, Foucault and people like that so, but you're super as someone as someone who is also trained to do that, not to resist, right. but to actually. Assist. I mean, as a physician, that's what you're. That's what you're trained to do. I mean, we're in our training as physicians. We were trained to accuse our patients. Oh wow! Of course. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you train in county hospitals. Who comes to county hospitals? The poor, all the people that are supposed to come to the Statue of Liberty come to county hospitals. And you accuse you're them wretched, of... You're wretched, you're, you know... Well, you accuse them of, of causing this to themselves, right? Not taking care of themselves. Right. And, you know, right. And, 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 you know and, then, and they have to get out of the hospital soon enough and you have to get this and you have to get... And you realize it's a language of the system. And the system wants to tell you, but look, man, you stick with us, you're going to be upper middle class. <sighs> you're going to be the 90th percentile and higher. Uh-huh. So, the, you know, I don't mind that, but at least I'll be honest enough and speak openly about it, like a true uh, imperial bourgeoisie. Yeah, but um, well, So you're, I mean, Fadi, you're saying, I think you're saying that you're, as a physician, you're wrestling with the, the hidden um, and sometimes pernicious... Uh, you know, assumptions and categories that, that are inflicted on people without bringing in the larger picture of the social system and so on that's implicated in all of this. As a poet, you're dealing with language conventions and you're dealing with storytelling conventions, which do the same thing. They sneak in all kinds of, you But know, you're also dealing with the construction of power. Right, exactly. Nomenclature. So my my question is, you've got these at least these two fields of endeavor that you're deeply involved in, and both of them involve the same the same struggle in a way. Right, and and that's part of my conversation about the relationship between the arts and 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 science or medicine and poetry, is that you know people ask me, well, were you trained in poetry? Did you take you know did you go to graduate school or and and the answer is no. Uh, And for me, I I never felt that I was too. bothered by that because I there was a point when I realized that the actually the foundation of knowledge for both systems is the same 
you know, I mean, it's Greek and Latin. Mm. Um, and and you, you start thinking about language and the construction of thought from that. It's, it's so, not like the humanities are from Mars and medicine is from Venus, per se. But, I, and, uh, and yet many, many people think that you are talking about the polar opposites, the sciences and poetry. They are different traditions. They are different, not just different traditions, they are different metaphysics, you know, that they're just utterly different. A lot of people would believe that. You're accessing... A completely and a different... lot of doctors and, yeah. and poets and, you know, yeah. But, but I mean, I'm not going to dismiss or efface differences. There mm-hmm. are differences, mm-hmm. but, I mean, but even... You but know, you see them as having a lot of the same. Sure. And even great thinkers, I mean, they, they've wedded, you know, I mean, they have the birth of the clinic or you have the, what is it, Deleuze's book of the clinical and the critical, mm-hmm. or, I mean, mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. you know, anti-Oedipus and, you know, uh, sure. the schizophrenic mind and the capitalist uh, structure and so forth. I mean, and, I mean, even Carl Linnaeus, you know, the father of taxonomy and so forth. If you think of why, like when it comes to butterflies, for instance, there's something fascinating. When he classified butterflies, he chose to use um, often esoteric Greek names, you know, of, of characters in Greek myth and what have you, to name the butterflies, to classify them. I mean, in and of itself, that's a fascinating moment. Mm. He, he sent myth into further immortality. If, mm. if the Greek myths were going to die in, in, in the heritage of the world, which, of course, they, they mm. weren't going to, somehow they live in the butterflies now. Well, you didn't go to school as a poet. You did it on the side. At some point, though, you entered a competition, yeah? I mean, your poems got sent off to the uh, Yale Series of Younger Poets competition, which is a big deal. A lot of America's most famous poets have won that award, and you won the award. And many of us forgotten ones, too, so. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest prizes you can win in the poetry scene in America, there's the Pulitzer, there's the Yale series, there's a few others. Yeah, there are a few others. But now, you, it's a, it's, we're a country of, of prizes. We are. So what was it like for you to enter that? I mean, you were saying yes in some sense to the, the system that annoys... Sure, it's a different, but it's a different you know, conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, the, you know, there, there, uh, there aren't uh, many uh, Arab Americans, particularly Palestinian Americans, or, or if you want to even expand it, Arab Anglophones. Yeah. Who who participate in in the cultural dialogue? You know, I'm I'm not necessarily an anarchist or anything, but <laughs> and even many uh, I know a couple of my, my friends who think they are, and you know, they're in places like Columbia and Harvard. So, you know. so when you won the the award, you didn't entertain the possibility of of then renouncing it. <laughs> right, right. No, nor did I think that I, you know, I was going to liberate the world after I won. But yeah, or, or that it would be of much benefit to anybody's uh, family that I cared for in in Zambia or Darfur. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to hear about you being so circumspect about the things you're involved in. And you know, I could be extremely facile and and glib and say, well, your background prepared you to be skeptical of institutions. Be skeptical of nations, uh, be skeptical of power, and indeed you are. But does it make life kind of hard to to be questioning the, the situations in which you're expected to perform all the time? I mean, you could say yes, it it does, but um, my life is good. Oh, <laughs> so good. you know, let's let's <laughs> let's just also not lose track of that. You know, I'm, I'm, I have food on the table, and uh, so far I have my health, and so forth. So and your I kids. mean, you know. Uh, there is also a tendency to want to victimize oneself, you know, and uh, I think overall, yeah, my life is good. <laughs> um, I was thinking about a, a poem of yours from um, your first book, The Earth in the Attic, called Home. Mm. Would you be willing to read that one? Yeah. Home. I will know it despite absence of glass and through women who own shards for mirrors. A striped wasp will flutter like a flag. I will watch it come and go, building nest, or any word other than nest. Earth, grains, and mouth spit glued inside the room's wooden window. Forgetfulness will make me strike the nest down in rifle but motion. Forgetfulness because after violence, simile blooms and wasps neural return to ruins and mouthfuls of grain. Someone explained this to me once as a bedtime story. I wanted what other powers my wings have, 
the thousand feathers that aren't mine and are whole for no one. Hmm. Do you want to talk about that poem at all? Uh, and this word home? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes I am, as a friend of mine told me once, envious of those who don't question the word and uh, this problem of origin or illusion of origin. And it's always interesting to want, you know, the idea of history, which, you know, we all create for ourselves with lineage and ancestry, even on a familial level, you know, always wants to go back to a very um, recent point in time that somehow detaches itself from the rest of the universe or the rest of the the earth or so forth. And and it's interesting sometimes to, you know, find yourself uh, inhabiting those moments where you are actually dissociated from all those mm-hmm. concepts and those mm-hmm. concepts are just a mere illusions and constructs that we all you know blather about too much and other times i feel you know very lucky that i had the chance to make something out of the opportunity of being an exile in a sense or uh displaced or you know related to that experience fatty i thought we'd end with you reading uh, another poem or two um i have one i'd like you to read but why don't you pick one of your own too Okay, I'd like to pick Luke Coolhand, I'm Your Father, which is a poem from Text 2, and it relates to uh, our conversation about medicine. It is a longer poem wherein each stanza is 160 characters long, so to make sure that I stay true to the form. Luke Coolhand, I'm Your Father. Nurturing people into junkies, Par for the course, pills and fear and salt and sugar and grease at the dollar store. They did have a choice. Softly, killing them softly at consumerist rates. Science isn't final on a few points. If you want to smear, smear. Just don't misconstrue me. I get paid well for it. And poets who get paid as much, wholly we listen to them. Don't get all che on me, chérie. My patience, my as if I own them, as long as they're nothing but patience. And they me, of course. They are called lives. This life Loved you, that one got you a newsboy cap, gift card for fancy steak, or asked you to her house or funeral. In tyranny, there's also love, as gesture, and as such, compassion is easy, a deductible or copay, or who do this calling? We anoint you demigod, a who's who club. As for mass murder, it doesn't need to occur acutely in order for it to be that. It's not the hell one enters, but the hell one enters others into and also enters. Hmm. The doubtful doctor... Fatty Judah. <laughs> and this other one, um, very different, uh, I think, but gets back to some of the things we were talking about a moment ago. It's called Twice a River, and it is from, again, the volume you've been mostly reading from today, A Light. Twice a River. After studying our faces for months, my son knows to beam is the thing to do. He'll spend years deciphering love, the injustice or the illusion of it. Having been brought into this world, volition is an afterthought. What will I tell him about land and language and burial places my father doesn't speak of? Perhaps my mother knows. In the movie, the dispossessed cannot return even when they're dead. The journalist felt rebuke 
for not having thought it mattered or for having thought it mattered too much? Will I tell my son all nations arise after mass murder, that I don't know any national anthem by heart, can't sing, take me out to the ball game? I should turn to flowers and clouds instead, though this has already been said well. It is night when he gazes into his mother's eyes at bath time. Kais and Leila, she announces after a long day's work. He giggles with his shoulders, not knowing he's installing a web in his amygdala or whichever places science thinks love dwells. Even love is a place? Oh, son, love no country and hate none, and remember crimes sometimes immortalize their victims other times the victimizer. Remember how you used to gaze at the trampoline leaves on their branches? Don't believe the sound of the sea in a seashell. Believe the sea, the endless trope, and don't say much about another's language. Learn to love it, while observing silence for the dead and the living in it. Well, thank you, Fatty. Thank you. Fatty Judah. His books include The Earth in the Attic, A Light, and Textu, as well as his translations of work by the Palestinian poets Mahmoud Darwish and Hassan Zaktan. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, bidding you goodbye. Until next week, we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>